I started recording a little bit prematurely, and I thought about cutting this out of the podcast, but I decided it sounded pretty comical, so I figured I'd leave it in. Enjoy the beginning of the podcast. Oh, fucking hell. I forgot to start the stream. Son of a bitch. You know what? I should check my checklist real fast. Where is my checklist? Uh, okay. Write a description. Make a thumbnail. All right. I'm going to preview. Open OBS. Set notifications to do not disturb. Go streamer mode, telltale window, Discord, YouTube live stream page, set up a live streaming event, configure YouTube live chat link, open documents, resize windows, start streaming, preview stream, announce podcast, ensure microphone is physically on, <clears throat> set sound to half volume, change sound to multi-output device, join voice chat, reset sound settings, test microphone, ensure YouTube pages are muted. All right, cool, mute site. Alrighty, start streaming. And we are live. Thank you guys for coming. So I had a few interesting things I wanted to talk about. I feel like every time I get on here, I talk about some really dark shit. So I figured we'd start out by just talking about something really chill. I wanted to talk about some Nintendo news, because as many of you know, I'm super into retro games. And Nintendo, of course, is kind of the king of retro games. So I figured we'd take a look at this interesting website. Apparently, Nintendo is facing a class action lawsuit. This website is at digitaltrends.com. It was written by Aaron Mamet just yesterday. So here's, where, here's what it says. A law firm based in the U.S. has filed a class action lawsuit against Nintendo over the drifting issues that have plagued the Joy-Con controllers of the Nintendo Switch. The law offices of... Chimicals, Schwartz, Kreiner, and Donaldson Smith, CSK and DS, wow, that's a long name, moved ahead with the lawsuit after gathering information from players who are experiencing the problem. In the lawsuit, which was filed in the U.S. District Court of the Western District of Washington, CKS and DS, which is a law firm, alleges that the joysticks on the Joy-Con controllers are defective. The problem results in drifting, which is when the controller registers movement with the user uh, when the user is not controlling the joysticks. This interferes a great deal with gameplay, especially in games that require precise controls, such as Super Mario Odyssey and Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, which are first-party titles. Both of those games were made by Nintendo. They're major franchise titles. The complaint filed on behalf of purchasers of Switches and Joy-Con controllers brings claims under various consumer protection statutes as well as various warranty and common law claims. I'm so glad they're doing this. The very first, uh, I bought a Switch for Kylie like, I don't know, two years ago for Christmas or something like that. I think it was, I think maybe it was 2017 Christmas, I don't remember. Anyway, I bought it for her and I had the red and the blue controllers with it. It's actually a really solid system. I love the Switch. It has like a lot of really, really good games on it. I've got like Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu and um, let's see, Breath of the Wild, Mario Odyssey. What's the what's the one? It's uh, Splatoon 2. Uh, just a bunch of games, really solid games. But after a really short time, surprisingly short time, like a few months the Joy-Cons started drifting. I'm playing Breath of the Wild and the camera's turning. I was like, what is going on? I must have gotten defective controllers. So I go out and I buy new black controllers 
two black controllers and guess what they're defective too they're doing the exact same thing and it's not just that they can't seem to stay connected they keep disconnecting and missing inputs and stuff i have to be within like two feet of the switch to use the joy cons they're absolutely terrible controllers i don't know how nintendo put their name on something so terrible it's embarrassing so anyways Continuing on with the article says the reason behind the Joy-Con drifting issue is still undetermined, though theories include dust accumulating under the joysticks and hardware uh, defects. Nintendo Switch owners who have started experiencing the problem have taken things into their own hands. One commonly suggested solution is to clean the area underneath the joystick with either compressed air, cotton swabs and alcohol, or electrical contact cleaner spray. Another fix for tech-savvy gamers is to replace the Joy-Con joystick entirely. Yeah, I actually bought a new joystick because the joystick itself is like five bucks or something on Amazon. And I tried to replace it myself. And bear in mind, I'm used to working in iPhones where if if you mix up the screws, then you will destroy it. Really, really tiny pieces. I'm used to working in old games and stuff too, like uh, and soldering. I, I solder stuff. I mean, I've built lighting systems and stuff i know what i'm doing with soldering irons and things like that and the joy con is ridiculously complex inside it's really really difficult like the screws are really poorly placed and they're so tiny that you it's really hard to get them back where they're supposed to be they go under ribbon cables and things it's just awful it is an awful architectural design remember this is coming from an iphone repair person so anyways uh it's really not feasible to replace the joystick on joy cons even for somebody who's really very technically advanced like me but i'm glad to see that there's a a a class action lawsuit hopefully we'll see something come of this because that really gets to me like i just paid like what i think the switch was like 300 dollars when i bought it a couple years ago and I can't manage to use the joysticks. Anyway, there's this other Nintendo article about E3. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of E3. It's basically, as far as I know, it's Nintendo's worldwide conference. It may be just the worldwide gaming conference. But anyways, Nintendo made some interesting announcements at E3 this year, at 2019 E3. So I wanted to go over a few things that I'm pretty excited about. First, Zelda Breath of the Wild sequel was announced. That's really exciting. That game is absolutely fantastic. Seriously. I love Breath of the Wild. It says the biggest announcement of Nintendo's conference was saved for the very end when the company revealed the first teaser for a sequel to The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. The brief teaser video gave us scant details about the new game and no clue about when to expect it, but it did drop some intriguing clues about the story. It showed Link and Zelda together, appearing to explore a tomb before something awakens. In the distance, Hyrule Castle starts to shake and rise. It's super exciting. I absolutely cannot wait for this. Another thing that they announced that I'll be interested in, I'm a huge Zelda fan, by the way, Link's Awakening is coming this fall with some surprises. So Link's Awakening was a Game Boy Zelda game. And Game Boy, by definition, basically, is really, really low power. It's got a processor in it that was commonly used in calculators in the 1970s. The hardware in the Game Boy was outdated when the Game Boy came out. 
it was like 30 years outdated when the Game Boy Color came out. It was just a piece of garbage, really. But Link's Awakening was a really solid Zelda game. Very solid Zelda game. Although it was, it was a lot more confusing than most Zelda games. I will say that. Like, the world map was a maze in itself. You couldn't just go from, like, the north to the south. You had to take all these weird detours and everything. But, you know, it was a solid game, especially for the Game Boy. So they announced Link's Awakening remake is coming this fall. It says, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening is being remade for Nintendo Switch, and the company announced a fall release date during its presentation. The game looks like a neat modernization of the Game Boy Classic, but one surprise is the new addition of a dungeon editor mode. It will let you collect individual rooms from dungeons and interlock them to make your own dungeon mashups. That's going to be interesting. So I guess it's kind of like Mario Maker a little bit. To mark the game's release, Europe is getting a lavish collector's edition. Complete with the Game Boy-styled steelbook case, the game will also release along with a new amiibo showing Link rendered in the game's claymation-like art style. For more details, check out our pre-order guide. That's pretty exciting. I cannot wait to see that. I think that's coming... They said this year, so it can't be more than a few months out. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they'll try to do like a Christmas release, who knows, but I'll be watching for that. Another thing coming this year, August 30th, is the new Tool album. Don't even get me started on that. That's not Nintendo-related, but I'm super excited for it. Let's see. Pokemon Sword and Shield is coming out, too. Um, It says, the first main Pokemon game for Nintendo Switch, Pokemon Sword and Shield, is dropping this year. Nintendo gave the pair of games their own Nintendo Direct presentation just ahead of E3, revealing the new giant-sized Pokemon mechanic and a bunch of new Mons. New Mons? I've never heard that before. We've also learned how the raid battles will work, which lets you team up with other trainers to take on one kaiju-sized pocket monster. Okay. Sword and Shield will honor the recent legacy of the series by working with the Pokeball Plus accessory released alongside the Let's Go games. That's not the only lesson it's taking from Let's Go, as we've also learned that it won't have random encounters. Ooh, interesting. To the chagrin of some fans, though, Sword and Shield won't allow you to import your entire collection of monsters from previous generations, and this may be the norm going forward into future Pokemon games as well. When I was really little, surprisingly, I was allowed to play the Pokemon games, being, you know, a Jehovah's Witness at that time. I was very limited in my options. I was limited in what I was allowed to read or consume. Uh, For example, I couldn't read Harry Potter. That was one thing that they did not let me do. I really wanted to, too. I saw it in a book order form, and I wanted to get it, and my mom was like, nope. But I was allowed to play Pokemon. And so my mom, one time, one year, she got me a Game Boy, and eventually I talked her into getting me Pokemon Blue. So I played the shit out of that game. Pokemon Blue was awesome. Eventually, I ended up getting a Game Boy Color, like, years later. The Game Boy Advance was already out by the time I got my Game Boy Color, but it came with Pokemon Crystal, so I got a Game Link cable, and eventually I was able to, like, trade Pokemon between Crystal and Blue and things like that. So I have a history with the Pokemon games, but I feel like at a certain point, they were way overdoing it with the Pokemon There's like a trash Pokemon. It's just ridiculous. Like some of the Pokemon that they've designed are just garbage. Literally garbage, some of them. So Pokemon has kind of lost my interest at this point. I do like the remakes, like the remakes of Blue and Red. 
Like, I liked Fire Red and Leaf Green. Absolutely fantastic games. I can get on board with, like, Heart Gold and Soul Silver because they kind of still follow the same storyline and things. And they, it, this is before they had, like, 16,000 Pokemon out. And also, I liked Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee. Those were basically remakes of Blue also. I'm not sure how I feel about the battle system with those two. Like, Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee were a little bit different than other Pokemon games in the sense that when you do random encounters, you're not battling random Pokemon. You're trying to catch random Pokemon. Even if you already have it, doesn't matter. Every time you catch a Pokemon, your experience goes up. So you're not fighting them, you're catching them. And it's a different strategy from previous Pokemon games. And I don't really know how I feel about it. I mean, it works, but I really liked the battling system a lot. So anyway, I did end up beating Let's Go Pikachu, I think. I had like eight badges or something. I was really far into that game when I stopped playing it. But anyway, it's an all right game. I just really, I'll just stick to Fire Red and Leaf Green, honestly. Those are the main announcements that I wanted to cover with, like with E3 and with Nintendo, things like that. There was one more thing though. Uh, Apparently the Nintendo Switch may soon add retro games from another, uh, I'm sorry, from other classic systems. This is from that same guy, Aaron Mamet, on digitaltrends.com. According to him, Nintendo is adding basically a virtual console tantamount to the Wii virtual console, where they're giving you the ability to play retro games on the Switch, which is really, really cool. It says the online subscription service for the Nintendo Switch may soon add more titles to its collection of retro games. The service currently offers access to a library of classic NES games, among other benefits such as online multiplayer and cloud saves. More NES titles are being regularly added to the collection, with the games getting new features such as save states and online play. Nintendo Switch Online subscribers, however, have longed for the inclusion of games from other classic platforms, such as the Super Nintendo, N64, and GameCube. While there's no timetable, it appears that Nintendo is at least considering the expansion of the service's retro collection. Here's my issue with this, okay? I don't believe in piracy. I will say that up front right now. I don't believe in piracy. I have to say that as a public figure, if not just a regular individual. But Nintendo is making it really, really difficult to say that. They make it more and more difficult every day because these games, these retro games... There's no way to replay them. I mean, are you going to go out and buy every console from the 90s? I have a a lot of them, and it's pricey. I can't afford to buy every game that I wanted to play, every console I wanted to play. It's not easy, and it's not cheap. You know what they should have done for the NES Classic and for, like, the SNES Classic, those those little systems that they had, like, came with, like, two controllers or whatever, and they had, like, 50 games? They should have put all the games on. Why didn't they put all of the games on them? Why were we stuck with like 50 of them? Sure, they were the 50 best, quote unquote. But look at the PlayStation Classic or the PlayStation Mini or whatever it was. It had a terrible library of games. It had like nothing good. It had Final Fantasy VII and a few others that were really solid games. But they had, like, snowboarding games and stuff. Why would anybody want those? And I played uh, Mega Man Legends on there. They didn't have Mega Man Legends on that, I don't think. They didn't have Mega Man Legends 2, at the very least. I want all the games. Why can't they fit all of them on? There are a total of, I think, 
1,200 NES games, around 1,200 SNES games, and I think somewhere in the same vicinity for PlayStation 1 games. They're not that big. They're not that robust. I think they take up like two gigs for some, for like all of the NES games. That's not that big. They totally could have done it. If Nintendo isn't providing a service that, that, that enables us to do this legally, then people are going to do it illegally which again, I don't endorse, but it's going to happen. Nintendo's been going around to a bunch of people lately, a bunch of websites, ROM websites and stuff, and suing them and hitting them with DMCA notices and all this other stuff, trying to bring down the ROM websites. I would have a lot less of a problem with them doing that if they gave us some way to play the games. If they gave us a way to play them that didn't require us to buy them, again, from generation to generation. Like the Wii Virtual Console games, you can you could buy them and play some of them. But now the, the Switch Virtual Console is completely different. I don't even know if it's a Virtual Console. It's a completely different system. You have to buy that stuff again. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. And Nintendo's totally dropping the ball on retro games. Somebody asked me, have you ever seen the podcast The, Athe- the Atheist Experience? I was thinking of, of getting into it, but I want to hear your opinion first. Yes. I know all of the people involved in the atheist experience. I personally know Matt Dillahunty. I've hung out with him, and I know just about everybody on the show. I know a lot of the ACA members. I know the ACA board members, even. I know the president of the ACA. I know all of them. The ACA, by the way, is the nonprofit that runs the show the atheist experience i i respect the atheist experience a lot actually as a show like over the past few years i've i've listened to every episode of the atheist experience and it's it's taught me a lot about logic and reasoning and things like that a lot it's definitely worth the watch if for no other reason than that really really solid education on logical fallacies. They talk about it all the time and the laws of logic. And of course, Matt Dillahunty does a bunch of debates with, by the way, Matt Dillahunty is on the atheist experience. He's one of the main hosts. He does a lot of debates with people, with creationists and stuff, Matt Slick and others. And he talks all about logic and stuff with it. It's super fascinating. I would suggest you get into the atheist experience. Yes, it's a really cool show. Watch their their old backlog. I feel like the atheist experience now is a little bit different from when it was like a public access call-in show. If you can find the public access call-in stuff, it's really, really fascinating. Uh, On a more personal note, there's been some drama going on with like the atheist experience, the ACA, and rationality rules, and a bunch of others. Generally, I just try to steer clear of drama. I see the value that the atheist experience provides just in the education that it gives and and things like that, and I'm not going to get all caught up in drama. Appreciate what it provides you can, all right. I don't like Sam Harris. I don't like some of the things that Sam Harris says and does. I think he he takes some really shitty positions sometimes. But his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, was absolutely superb. I can appreciate the work he does and still think that he's had some really hot takes. I can still criticize him for those hot takes, but also appreciate the work that he does. Now, honestly, I think that I'm not going to get into the drama with the ACA and everything. But yes, I would endorse the atheist experience. And honestly, I would endorse the ACA also. They do good work. They all, everybody on that board currently 
stands for trans rights and gay rights and everything else. They are all progressives. I know them all personally, and they are all on the same page as I am with rights for oppressed groups. So take that for what you will. First up from Vance Man, what do you think of Cyberpunk 2077? What do I think of Cyberpunk 2077? I don't think I know of that. This must be like a new system. I just pulled it up. If you're listening to the podcast and not watching it, I just pulled it up on my screen to give it a read. I guess it was announced in May 2012. In 2013, a teaser trailer was released reaching 12 million views by June 2018. The game was confirmed for Microsoft Windows, I guess, in 2018. And then for the PS4 and Xbox One at E3 2018, where they revealed a second trailer and a media-exclusive pre-alpha gameplay demonstration. Jeez, they announced it in 2012, and they're just now getting to releasing it? That's nuts. That's like that's that's forever. That's like a an eight-year turnover or something like that. Yeah, I haven't heard of that, but it seems pretty cool. Um, anyway, do you have another question for me? For sure. Uh, Glenn was asking, how's Alpha Force Zero doing? She's doing well. I mentioned this before, but she stays with her grandma on Sundays and Wednesday nights. She's actually been staying over there a lot, uh, this week for one reason or another. School's starting back up soon. So yeah, she's just been enjoying her summer vacation. She's going to fifth grade soon. This one also comes from Glenn. Considering the Neuralink conference this week where they showed their progress towards a machine, uh, a brain machine interface, what do you think provided it was safe? Do you, did the benefits outweigh the risks? Do the benefits outweigh the risks of a Neuralink to a computer, presumably, cons- assuming it's safe? Honestly, I feel like I think I've heard Elon Musk talk about this a few times. The big bottleneck right now is input and output with computers. We shouldn't really be focused on improving like processor power and things like that at this moment. Elon Musk thinks that we should be working on improving the link between the human and the computer. Right now, it's limited to how fast we can type and how fast we can read, pretty much. He feels that we should link it into our brain more efficiently in some more efficient way. I don't really have a fear of technology. I would have no issue with that, really. I I understand how some things seem intimidating and scary when you don't really understand them. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't really fear the unknown. I don't think I ever fear the unknown. Just bring it on, pretty much. We'll, we'll, see what happens. I am a little bit worried about artificial intelligence and how efficient and how good it's getting and how realistic like and and at what point if we can't tell the difference between a human and an artificial intelligence or if we can't tell if artificial intelligence is sentient or not, does it deserve rights and things like that? Uh, Sam Harris has been talking about that a lot lately and it's something to consider. The progressive should be all for rights for artificial intelligences. I do have a, a few super chats here, a couple of super chats. So I wanted to read these. Omega Riley, uh, uh, well, first I'll say Wendy Galecki gave, sent $2. I appreciate that, Wendy. She said, wish I had more to give Telltale. Love your podcasts. Be well. Gotta run. Oh, you you don't have to give anything at all, really. So I appreciate uh, everything that you guys do to keep me going. Uh, then she said, I am tired, very tired. I haven't slept two nights, not a wink. I am crashing. Good night. 
Wow, that's rough. <laughs> Go get some sleep. Omega Riley said, just found out I got a new job, so I decided to share the love. Don't forget to like the podcast, everyone. Love you, T-Dog. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. I heard that you didn't have a job last week or something like that. I'm glad to hear that things are going well. That's really, really good. So congratulations on the new job, and thank you for the super chat. That's awesome. Struck by lightning, Rose, my girlfriend, and the doctor, and I have been playing Borderlands a little bit. Borderlands 2 lately. In fact, I played it. We all three played it with Mr. Atheist the other night, interestingly enough. And we were talking about uh, streaming it. We, I don't know. I would love to stream that, just like people listening to us talk shit about politics and stuff while we play Borderlands 2. That would be awesome. Omega Riley sent another super chat. That whole speech made me tear up a bit. Damn you, ta- damn you, take my money. And then he sent more money. I appreciate the hell out of you, Omega Riley. You were just an awesome dude, for real. Uh, thank you so much. You're you're the shit. You're my favorite fan at this moment. I am a fan of Omega Riley. Just because he's always here. It's like every podcast, Omega Riley is there in the chat somewhere. And he's an ex-Jehovah's Witness, too. We talk every now and then. He's like making me a bracelet and stuff. I was hoping to get my hands on it, but I think I had a, a kerfuffle with my mailbox. I, I fixed it. I hope you didn't mail it and it get returned or anything, because that would kind of suck. But anyways... Thank you, Omega Riley. You're just the shit. Lucid, wait, Lucidus Anime, I think. Lucidus Anime, maybe. Sent $20, says, Shaka Laka, read me out loud. Hestu is supreme and Potato makes me proud. That's awesome. Okay, that is a Breath of the Wild reference, and I, I love you for that. That's really fantastic. I Seriously, I cannot wait for Breath of the Wild too. Super excited for it. But anyways, thank you so much. Goddess Lady asked, can a family be a cult? Can family be a cult? Interesting question. Now, it fits some of the bite model, just family generally. And there are families that can be cults, but generally just a regular old typical standard family is not a cult, even though it is setting up a system of rewards and punishments to try to train somebody and things like that. No, it's not a cult. Sometimes I feel like I talk about really dark subjects and I'm trying to lighten it up a little bit with like... um like game stuff and things like that. But for those of you who saw my video earlier on Catholicism, some of you may know of Opus Dei. It's a Roman Catholic organization, apparently. I think it's pronounced Opus Dei. It's actually kind of a, like, what, maybe a dark organization? It's, it's very questionable. So let's just give this a read and see what it says. Opus Dei in the full prelature of the Holy Cross and Opus Dei, Roman Catholic lay and clerical organization whose members seek personal Christian perfection and strive to implement Christian ideals and values in their occupations and in society as a whole. Theologically conservative, Opus Dei accepts the teaching authority of the church without question and has long been the subject of controversy. It has been accused of secrecy, cult-like practices, and political ambitions. So I'm just going to read a couple of sections here. History and organization. Opus Dei was founded in 1928 in Spain by um, St. Jose Maria S. What? Wait a minute. I got to get this name right. St. Jose Maria Escriva de Beliger y Albus, canonized in 2002, a priest trained in law, believing that daily life can be sanctifying. Escriva, I guess is the name, sought to encourage Catholic laypeople and priests in their pursuit of holiness through their chosen professions. Opus Dei was formally approved by the Holy See in 1950 as a secular institute, i.e. a new form of religious association whose members profess the evangelical councils 
in a in secular life. On November 28, 1982, Pope John Paul II, a staunch supporter of Opus Dei, established it as the first and only personal prelature in the church, with jurisdiction over people rather than a geographic area. With separate branches for men and women, the organization has been headed since 1982 by a prelate elected by its members. The prelate can establish seminaries and promote students to holy orders, but the organization remains subject to some oversight by local bishops. Interesting. Let me read the controversy section here. It says, Because Opus Dei included many highly educated people, Spain's leader, Generalissimo Francisco Franco, involved several of its members in instituting economic reform in 1956, and among his ministers were members of Opus Dei. This led many to speculate that the group had political and economic ambitions, though Opus Dei's influence waned in Spain as other groups entered the political arena after Franco's death in 1975. Aggressive recruiting practices, the brain brainwashing of new recruits and the isolation of members from their families are among the charges often leveled against the organization. Membership is usually kept secret, which has fueled allegations that the group operates as a cult or elite secret society. Pointing to its continued growth, Opus Dei denies these accusations and has the continued support of the Vatican. So from my understanding, just from basically surface level discussion with a few people about this group. It's it is endorsed by the Catholic Church, by the Vatican. It's endorsed by the Vatican and it's ultra it's pretty much ultra conservative, an ultra conservative organization, ultra conservative branch of Catholicism. And there are some people who are very concerned that the next pope is going to support Opus Dei uh, to a scary extent make the organization grow larger. It's pretty much, a, a, it's a very extreme organization from my understanding. So that's something to be watching out for. I may actually end up covering Opus Day on my YouTube channel at some point. But there's this other article I found about Opus Day I found really interesting. It's, uh, it's by Raw Story. Bill Barr, which I'll get into Bill Barr in a minute. Bill Barr has ties to ultra-conservative Opus Dei, and that could explain his ends justify the means corruption. So for those of you who don't know who Bill Barr is, I think he's the attorney general in the Trump administration. And when uh, the Mueller report was completed, I think he received the Mueller report before anybody else really did. And he basically went through, reviewed it, and then released this thing to the media saying the Mueller report doesn't implicate Trump in anything. It completely clears him and all this other stuff. Now, if you actually read the Mueller report, that's not actually true. That's that's very false. The Mueller report had a lot of questionable things in it about a great many people. But at, at any rate, Bill Barr is the guy who got it first and basically released the story to the media before anyone else uh, got a chance to see the report. So it says, in an extensive post at the Daily Cost, contributor Frank Cocazelli connects the dots between Attorney General Bill Barr's previous work with the ultra-conservative Catholic organization Opus Dei and his recent behavior, and suggests that relationship might have influenced his decision to give President Donald Trump a pass after reviewing a highly critical report from special counsel Robert Mueller. According to the writer... And as noted by Barr's own answers to a congressional questionnaire, Barr served as the director of the Catholic Information Center from 2014 to 2017, I guess. 
and director of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, 2004 to 2009. The CIC, which is the Catholic Information Center, serves as Opus Dei's de facto Washington, D.C. base of operations. Its staff and board of directors are stocked with members of the personal prelature's members, as well as members of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Cocazelli wrote before adding, It's hard to imagine any director of CIC not having some sort of developed relationship with Opus Dei. Really fascinating. This relationship may help explain his apparent ends-justify-the-means strategy the writer offered accompanied small sampling of the workings of Opus Dei. I'm not really sure that I buy the link between the two yet. Uh, Dude just worked at the Catholic Information Center, and he was the director of Ethics and Public Policy. I, I, I have not seen the link between... those two roles and Opus Dei yet, but I do want to research Opus Dei. Maybe I just don't understand how it works completely, and that's why I am a little bit skeptical of this article. At any rate, Bill Barr is kind of a piece of garbage, and also I'm not a huge fan of Trump, so take that for what you will. Yeah, I I really do need to look more into Opus Dei. Seems super fascinating. I have a couple more articles. There's one here by Hemant Mehta. I don't know if you guys know who that is. Um, he is in my community on YouTube, the atheist community. I know him. A lot of my friends know him. He's a really chill dude. But he has this blog on Pathios called The Friendly Atheist. Uh, he wrote an article entitled, Woman Convicted of Killing Her Two Kids on Orders of Cult Leader. So kind of caught my attention, and I wanted to see what it had to say. He wrote this just two days ago. A member of a dangerous doomsday religious cult was convicted of first-degree murder for the deaths of her two young daughters, but the leader of the group is also on trial for the murders. The attorneys for Nishika Bramble argued that she was legally responsible for her children's deaths by negligence locking them in a car with no food or water, but said it was a religious leader and manipulative narcissist by the name of Madani Seuss, C-E-U-S, who persuaded her to do it. Bramble was in a position of trust over the girls, Deputy District Attorney Robert Whiting told jurors. She knew it would result in their deaths, he said, replaying portions of her recorded interrogation, and said once Seuss had singled her out as unclean, Bramble acted very quickly to save her own life and that of the child she was carrying. Miss Bramble knowingly caused the deaths of the children. She could have avoided that fate, just like she did for herself, he said. This is not a case where someone was the victim of larger circumstances and couldn't control her actions. Really interesting. I have a lot to say about this, actually. Let me continue reading. The ultimate question is how much blame a cult victim should bear if she was pressured into doing something criminal. The brainwashing can't be ignored, but neither should the fact that only one person committed the act. Bramble's defense team claimed Seuss was a cult leader who worked to separate the kids from their mother since they first arrived at the compound, and that there was no way Bramble had complete control over her actions. They insisted the complete submission to Seuss was part of the program. Her attorney said, as absurd as people outside of the loose-knit family band might have found it, Bramble and others believed absolutely that Seuss had the power to reap their souls, that their ascendance into the light body depended on unswerving obedience to her. 
Bramble had acted on Seuss' orders out of fear, attorney Harvey Polevsky said. What this case is about is the illusion of free will, Polevsky said. Interesting. The defense team brought in cult expert Janja Lalik, I've never heard of them before, to testify, and she explained that cults work only through devotion to a charismatic figure like Seuss. Still, it wasn't enough to save Bramble. She was eventually convicted. All right, I, I do have a lot to say about this. I'm sure a lot of you guys know that, I mean, I've talked about this a couple of times on my channel, but I was addicted to substances for a, a while. And as time went on, I, all right, I started out as a Jehovah's Witness and I had all of these moral beliefs and feelings and everything, right? I would never steal, I would never lie, I would never cheat in any way unless it was to benefit Jehovah's Witnesses. But generally, that stuff was kind of built into me from birth, really. I was motivated to be extremely morally upright. And as time went on, slowly but surely, I could see my moral compass eroding as I fell deeper and deeper into addiction. That's what happens. When somebody gets addicted to a substance, their brain starts changing. Their feelings on things start changing. Their ideas and beliefs all start eroding slowly, one day at a time. You give up this one thing, and you're like, well, you know, this isn't that different from that. So you give up the next thing. It's like you're giving up moral ground every day when you're in addiction. That's how it works. And in many ways, cults work the exact same way. I mean, you can sit here and say, how can a mother do that to her kids? That's so wrong. And you can say the same thing about my mother. How can a mother do that to their kid? Stop talking to them like that. That's so wrong. I would never do that. But think about this. You're taking one short logical step at a time. One short logical step. And all you need is just one little piece to be off in that logic, and it sends you on a completely different path. All you need is one little piece of logic. Just take it for granted. Okay, the Bible is true. Let's just say the Bible is true. Everything in the Bible is true and is written by God. Let's just start from that starting point, assuming we're a religious person, okay? Assuming we're a Jehovah's Witness. Once you start from that point, you take one more logical step at a time. You see in the Bible it says you're not even supposed to dine with a man who, is, who doesn't believe in God. Now, they're leaving out the next letter that Paul wrote where he says, never mind, I'm sorry, you don't want to cause undue sadness to people by shunning them. They're going to ignore that. You don't need to see that. That one twisted little logical step where it just, just leave everything else out and say, the Bible says don't even eat with an apostate. Just take that and ignore everything else. That's one small logical step. And the moment you take that logical step, the moment you accept that logical step, everything else falls into place and everything else Jehovah's Witnesses do makes sense. It's wrong, but it makes sense. It's, it, you can understand how they got to where they are, even knowing that it's, it's wrong that they got there. And that's how it works. It's a lot like addiction in that way. It's just short logical steps. It's short erosions into immoral behavior, where you can justify each small step into immoral behavior, like shunning, like stealing to provide yourself with what you need to stay addicted. So we sit here and look at the end result of that brainwashing. This woman killing her kids, for example. 
we're sitting here and looking at the end result of those logical steps, but we're not looking at the progression. We aren't looking at the logical steps that it took for her to decide that that was the right thing to do. If we switched bodies with her, Adam for Adam, there would be nothing extra that's us. There is no extra thing, no extra willpower in us that isn't in her. There's no extra special soul or something in us that isn't in her. She takes logical steps just like every other human. If you had been in that intensive brainwashing type of situation, if I had been in that intensive brainwashing situation, there's nothing unique about me that would have been able to resist the brainwashing if I hadn't grown up understanding that that's how it works. Now, I, I know a lot about cults, so I, I can say pretty confidently that I probably wouldn't find myself in a situation like this personally. But a lot of people do. A lot of people do. Millions. Billions, maybe. They find themselves making these short logical steps and doing immoral things in the name of morality all the time. Now, this is an extreme example, but I am real. I find it, I am hard pressed to judge somebody for doing something under the influence of a cult. They've taken her autonomy away, they've taken her consent away. She is, uh, for all intents and purposes, a robot following instructions and doing what she believes to be the right thing. Just like my mom is. She has completely abandoned me. I don't even talk to her. But she thinks she's doing the right thing under the influence of a cult. She thinks she's doing the right thing. I find it really difficult to blame my own mother for all of the pain that she's put me through. I find it really hard to blame her for that and really hard to hate her for any of that because I was in that mindset too. I shunned my brother for a while even. So like I said, I don't know the whole situation with this, this legal case with this woman. I can sit here and objectively say it's wrong to kill your kids. Period. That's, that's wrong. She did the wrong thing. But I really don't understand what she's been through. I don't understand the, the short logical steps that she has been fed to get to the conclusions that she came to. So I, I feel like I just have to leave it in the hands of the court system, as unhappy as I am about that. But I would honestly err more on the side of being understanding and protective of the cult member. Oh, and try to prosecute the cult leader. I guess that's the end of the podcast. Appreciate you guys coming on and giving this a listen, and I will talk to you next week.